This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Moranalytics podcast is brought to you by Paul Cellular. Paul Cellular was created to give a better option for everyone looking for premium wireless phone service for less cost with straightforward plans, no strings attached, no confusing fine print. Paul strives to be the best value in wireless while supporting their customers with the service that they deserve and that they expect. Their mission's quite simple, to provide the best user experience possible for everyday life. They got you covered nationwide in the U.S. with unlimited talk, text, and premium, fast LTE data plans, Hotspot coverage with no additional cost in all 50 states and the U.S. Caribbean regions with additional coverage available in both Canada and Mexico. Plans also include unlimited free Wi-Fi calls internationally when calling U.S. lines and unlimited text and data across 210 countries. There are no credit checks. There are no contracts. There are no overage costs. You could just live life and focus on you. Life is better with Pulse. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moran Analytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, what's going on, podcast fans? How you doing? What's up? Welcome to episode number 118 of the Moranalytics podcast, presented by Paul Cellular. Today's Friday, May 10th. Thank you, as always, for listening, for downloading. Please subscribe if you have not yet done so already. I'm joined today. In fact, you know what? I'm joined actually right here at the top by my man, Tone Pucks. Been a while, do some pad with pucks. This is actually Tone's first appearance on this podcast in nearly two months now. I guess he's too busy nowadays to serve the people. What's going on, man? How you doing? What's up? What's up? I'm good, man. Yo, why don't you pipe in some music? Uh, like it ain't no fun when the homies can't have none. You know, <laughs> little, little Snoop, little guess who's back in the motherfucking house with a. <laughs> Something, something for your mother. Yeah, that's that probably wouldn't work, even even though we can swear. <laughs> Yo, man. So you know, I just we didn't get to hook up last week, but I was in Buffalo for four or five days, and uh, I'm roughly three years into my family adventure here in Florida now, and I'm I'm gonna say it, man. It's official to me. Buffalo's better than Florida. I said it. People could disagree all they want, but if you disagree, I I, I think you're wrong. And I'm going to say this on the air right now. Buffalo, you know, for all of its flaws, even the long, whole, cold, shitty-ass winters, man, it's just a better place to live than Florida is. It really is, man. I, 
I very much look forward to coming back to live in Buffalo someday. Hopefully, very likely two years from now. I think that you've lived in Buffalo your whole life, right? Yeah. I think when you leave and you go live in other places, I think you really start to appreciate Buffalo a lot more. Uh, I mean, I think that's true, but look, I mean, it's it's been raining for like 49 straight days or some shit here, all right? <laughs> it is fucking miserable. And I know, you know, I, I don't know if you're going to make mention of it on this podcast or not, but, you know, I know some of the Florida weather has has interrupted some things that you enjoy very much. Uh, in the past week or so, but this has been ridiculous. All right. Yeah. I'm, you know, you came home, you, you had, you visited with some folks. I even, I, I, I was, I had good intentions to come visit you that, uh, that one night I even reached out to Scully and Joey, Joey was coming, he was in man. And then I just, I got all tired, like around eight, eight thirty, like I tend to these days more on that coming up on the puck drop. But Dude, I, I mean, it, it has just been gray and fucking miserable. So, you know, I know you deal with those those uh, inopportune storms there, but the injection of the sun into one's life is so underrated of a quality to someone that, that simply doesn't see the sun, but like one time since it became spring. Well, I must've been, I must've, terrible. I must've got it's real terrible. lucky that I, I must've got lucky because I was there over the last weekend and the weather was gorgeous, especially on Sunday. In fact, on Sunday, I was just driving around, man. I went to, um, I took a stroll down hurdle Avenue. And by the way, when I'm gone, I like to come back. I don't know. It's just I, I like to reminisce and, and shit like that. But I take strolls to our old neighborhoods, man. I went uh, I went up and down Hurdle Avenue. I met a friend at Empty Pockets on Hurdle for a couple. And then I took a stroll up Elmwood. I, I drove around the Niagara River on the on the thruway. And it's like the, the great thing about Buffalo and you kind of allude to it. The weather is shitty for so long that when it is a nice day, literally nobody is staying inside and doing anything. Nobody takes good weather for granted in Buffalo. I'm driving around. It's just so vibrant, man. Everybody's out. Even if you're just cutting your lawn, people are out on the water. They're walking around this trip on hurdle, not necessarily out at the bars, partying it up, just walking around, going shopping, just being outside and shit like that. And I think when you live in a place like Florida, where it's constantly 75, 80 degrees, sometimes really humid, I think you just take that shit for granted, man. And you, it's just another day. It's stay inside, do nothing in Buffalo. When the weather's nice, because you don't have that opportunity year round, man, you're always out doing something. I know you can't probably remember fire back as Sunday, but the weather was no, nice you know on what? Sunday. You're, you're saying it right now. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm remembering exactly, you know, what I would, di- what I did on Sunday driver. Sunday was popping. You're absolutely yeah. right. Everybody got the fuck out of their house on Sunday, man. Everybody. I mean, places were just jammed on, yeah. on Sunday. Uh, the, the roads were jammed on Sunday. You know, people were just out. So, yeah, Sunday was Sunday was popping. But I, I can promise you this. It has been unbelievably uh, so in the minority. And I know that, you know, people complain about the weather. There could be like two rainy days out of out of a week. And you'll get your chronic complainers that are like, oh, the rain. No, this this has not been over overdoing it or, you know, some sort of woe is me, Buffalo weather shit. This has been ridiculous. And as a baseball umpire, too, 
You know, I mean, we're we're winding down the high school season for baseball right now. And these teams are just dying trying to get out there, you know, playing two every day. Uh, there's no way some teams actually finish their season what it was intended to be. You know, so the, the, the spring sports have taken a real hit with regards to the to the weather, too. And it's just um, nah, it's been a lousy spring, man. It's been a real lousy spring in the 716. Well, I, I still miss it anyway. I miss the people of Buffalo and I miss having that good weather day where nobody takes it for granted and everyone seems to be outside living their best life and enjoying themselves. But anyway, all right, I got a lot of stuff that I want to get to on today's show. So let's get into it. I want to start with the Buffalo Bills. The draft's over. It's easy to fill content before the draft because there's so much speculation and stuff going on. But now the draft's over. We have a really good idea of what the final roster is going to be. There'll be a tweak or two. Maybe they sign somebody or make a trade at some point. But I think for the most part, this roster is set. And I've come up with what I think are five pretty good post-draft storylines. And I think they all kind of tie into one recurring theme. And that's this. That word competition gets thrown out there so much. And in Buffalo, you hear it every year, but it never really means anything. You go into training camp, and I think most roster spots are already a done deal especially starting spots. Maybe there's a couple spots in the back end of the roster up for grabs. But this year's different, man. I really feel like the Buffalo Bills have added enough talent at several different spots that for the first time in several years, there's going to be some legit, real-life, true competition in some spots. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I and I don't want to be all, you know cozy and agreeable with you here uh, just because it's been forever. But I, I think that's, I think that's a really smart and well thought out overview of, of the topics um, and the off season and, and the uh, you know, when training camp rolls around. Yes, very much. So there is competition up and down this roster right now, much more. So I would say on the offensive side right now than the defensive side, uh, you know, there's a position or two defensively that I'm sure we'll touch upon, but uh, the offensive side has a great deal of of competition, not only for starting, you know, not starting spots, but roster spots as well. So, uh, and usage spots, you know, in terms of third receiver, fourth receiver, uh, you know, third running back, <laughs> uh, all those things. So, yeah, it's it's I'm looking forward to it. Well, again, I have five post-draft bill storylines going right now. One of them being Ed Oliver being drafted with the ninth overall pick. I haven't gotten your take on air because you haven't been on since the NFL draft. What are your thoughts on Ed Oliver? And also, as a whole, are you a little surprised that the Bills didn't do more on the defensive side of the ball in free agency and the draft after Ed Oliver? Because defensive end was definitely a spot where there was a lot of speculation and a lot of reports tied to the Bills that they were going after some pretty big fish, trade rumors with Frank Clark. They were rumored to be interested in signing Trey Flowers before he went to, I believe it was Detroit. There's been other stuff out there as well. Ziggy Anzo was definitely somebody that the Bills were interested in signing. He ended up going to the Seahawks. But anyway, your thoughts on Ed Oliver. Are you happy with that pick? And also, are you a little surprised that the Bills didn't do more defensively, especially in free agency? 
Uh, I'm very happy with the Oliver pick. I, I felt all along, you know, people looking at a, a, a pass catcher, excuse me, in the first round of the draft were going to be disappointed. I just, I didn't see tight end uh, or wide receiver to be that big a need, but I, I felt like the interior of the defensive line, especially with, with Kyle leaving, definitely was. So, you know, whether it was the rumor of, of moving up for Williams or the hope that Oliver would be there or, you know, maybe trading back for, for a kid like Wilkins from, from Clemson, I, I always thought that there was a major hole on the defense that needed to be filled, and I'm, I'm glad that the Bills saw it that way as well. As far as Oliver as a player, like, I don't know much more than, than anybody else who just looks at some, you know, some highlights of him and things like that. But he seems like a penetrator, which is exactly I, – I don't know three technique, two technique. I, I, I don't differentiate the way a lot of people do. I, I, I have a, you know, a guy who absorbs the blocks, and I've got a guy who penetrates. Latule absorbs my blocks, you know, and Oliver now becomes the, uh, you know, the, the rush up the middle. And that's, that's the type of – you know, the type of defensive tackle that I think this defensive defense needed. I'll tell you what, I think Ed Oliver could be a day one upgrade from Kyle Williams, and I'm not being disrespectful whatsoever to Kyle Williams. He finished the season pretty strong last year, but he wasn't the same Kyle Williams of five, six years ago. He, he clearly had slow. I mean, he had five sacks last year, but and he had his moments, but he wasn't that consistent Kyle Williams that we've come to see throughout most of his entire Bills career. So I think Ed Oliver could be an upgrade from day one. And by the way, you talked about some of these defensive ends. I've heard you, maybe you're just dicking around on Twitter, trolling, who knows? I don't know, but you mentioned, you mentioned, you mentioned them. Why why do you you still think that's a possibility Clowney that maybe the bills swing for the fence and try to get Clowney? The guys I just mentioned were guys that, you know, credibly were reported as the bills having an interest in, Right. right? Maybe not so much. So, with Clark, but you know, these are guys that the bills were attached to, uh, you know, in various reports. So that's why I left Jadavion Clowney out of that group, but no, I'm just, I'm not trolling or, or just throwing shit at the wall with regards to, you know, thinking that the bills could be in on a player, the caliber of Jadavion Clowney. If the Texans do indeed want to move him. you know, they have the good working relationship with the GM who was under Bean, you know, in year one here, it's, I think it just comes down to, to asking both the Texans price uh, and Clowney's price, you know, once he, uh, um, you know, once he were to co- or come to a new team, because I don't think the Texans are going to extend him right now when there's a buzz of the potential for a trade that tells me that, you know, that there's something, you know, something going on that, that makes the big extension unlikely. So, you know, we've seen be- – it's a need for the Bills. They got a shit ton of money, and we've got an aggressive general manager uh, and, and a player that very likely will be moving by this time next year. So not putting the Bills in that conversation, Bob, I think you'd be missing the boat if you didn't. All right, well, let me ask you this, and let's have a little fun with it. Let's just say you're Brandon Bean right now and rumored – Asking price is your 2020 first round draft pick and Shaq Lawson. You're the Buffalo Bills. You doing it? Um, I think so. You know, I put that uh, as a scenario. I, I can't remember who I was tweeting with. Uh, I think it was Matt Perino. 
and he said, would you trade a second and a third and, and, and Shaq? And, and I said, yes, I would go as far as to trade a, a one. Um, and somebody, you know, chimed in on that, that Bean would never do it for a guy who doesn't have double digit sacks in the NFL yet. Great point. All right. I mean, I, I didn't feel as though it was a, a, a shot at me or anything like that. I, I thought it was a reasonable point. So maybe I am overvaluing him in that regard uh, in terms of what I pay. But um, I think the Bills have done enough with accumulating potential high end first round guys that are going to require some contracts pretty soon. Now, I mean, obviously, Clowney will, too. But um, I, I think they could. Uh, I think they could forego one for an impact, game-changing position, and um, and I think defensive end is in fact one of those positions. So I would go as far as to trade the one. But excellent points have been made. You know that that would be too much because not only are you are you trading that asset, but you're also going to have to break the bank for the player. And if you're going to do that, some might say, eh, just be patient, wait the year. And if he hits the market, break the bank then. I would do it. All right. So let's move on to the second thing in my notes here with Bill's post-draft storylines. And that's corner. Again, they didn't do too much as a whole, but they did address cornerback. Levi Wallace had a good rookie season, especially for an undrafted free agent. Clear cut starter by the end of the year. But I don't think the Bills are banking on him to do the same in 2019, evidenced by going out and signing free agent Kevin Johnson from Houston, former first-rounder, good player, but has a problem staying healthy. And then they also brought back an old name, well, not old, but they brought back EJ Gaines. So I think he got a legitimate three-way competition for the starting cornerback job outside of Tredavious White right now. Like I said at the top here, man, it's all about competition this year. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think we'll probably end up touching on it uh, on the offensive side, too, as it relates to Robert Foster in a very, very similar uh, spot as Levi Wallace. You know, a couple undrafted guys who showed great potential late in the season or in the second half of the season. You know, I, I think the other thing that goes along with the competition for that uh, for that starting spot is the depth that is necessary behind uh, Taron Johnson in the nickel spot as well, which I believe both of those guys can provide, uh, Gaines and Johnson. So I don't know how good Wallace would be in the slot. I don't think he did a lot of that last year. But it, it's not, for me, and it's not just about the competition. I do enjoy and will enjoy looking at that three-way competition but I'm also looking to, you know, to get some depth behind uh, behind Johnson, who was very good last year, but also plays a little recklessly and, you know, was taken out of his his rookie year. Uh, and you got to wonder if um, if you just need an insurance policy in the slot there, you know, with a with a kid who plays as hard as as he does uh, moving forward. Another storyline going forward will be the wide receiver position. You got Beasley, Brown, you got Zay Jones, you got Foster, one through four. Who knows what that order is going to be? I think Beasley being the slot receiver is the only thing that stands out to me is almost a lock at this point. Anyway, my question is for you. Are you a little surprised 
that they didn't address the position and the draft in terms of getting maybe one more guy, especially maybe a bigger guy, a taller guy who can go up over the middle, who can high point the ball, that possession type of receiver, the big guy. Are you a little surprised that they did not go out and do anything to address that, particularly in the draft? Only to the point where it was such a topic of conversation amongst fans and media. You know, John Murphy still uh, talks about his befuddlement with no uh, uh, addition to the receiving group via the draft. But my surprise kind of stops there. Me personally, you know, I didn't go out on a on a limb, you know, to, to say as much. Well, it's not like I was given a, a chance to, you know, being that I, I wasn't invited on during the entire draft process. But um, <laughs> I, I just, you know, I, I look at a guy like Robert Foster. I look at an, un, uh, an undrafted guy like that and and how much promise he showed. And to me, that becomes your quote-unquote draft pick uh, for the following year. You know, his development becomes the guy that you would have otherwise drafted first, uh, you know, in the first or second round this year. Um, I just did not see it as as a huge need. Those were two big additions, you know, via free agency. Good good size money, very defined roles, and, uh, you know, two guys, uh, two incumbents, that showed a great deal of promise. And where else was the other guy, you know, really needed? Now, look, I, I understand, you know, he chased Antonio Brown and, and maybe that gave people the impression that, you know, that they were the, the type of regime that valued a number one. But, you know, once they went the other way with it, I, I just I just didn't see it. And I didn't see it as 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 really being a need. And I don't think that they are down on Zay or worried about Foster because, you know, he, he was inconsistent, especially early on last year with effort. He got and, a, yeah, he got himself uh, cut last year. Amongst other things. I think it's a room that has defined roles and tremendous potential. I don't know that I needed to add more potential to a room that already includes a – second round pick who's trying to come into his own and honestly a guy with a skill set okay of a day one or two pick who simply you know had issues in college that if he fixes them he's bursting with potential as well I I just I'm I'm totally good with the wide receiver room right now unless the Bills were going to get rid of Zay Jones of all the stuff that went on before the draft, all the topics, all the conversations, wide receiver was the one position where I never felt like the Bills were really going to go all out in addressing. I remember early in the process when DK Metcalf blew everyone away at the Combine and everyone in the world had him going to the Bills in their mock drafts with that ninth pick, if, if he would even last at that time. I just never bought into it. If for, if for no other reason than... Let's just say, okay, you, you drafted DK Metcalf at nine or anyone in the first round or even second round for that matter. Somebody is going to be the odd man out among the four that they already have right now. You mentioned Roberts. He's making the team. He's, he's going to be the kick returner. He's good on special teams. So he's that fifth receiver. You got four out there now. Somebody's got, assuming they would even keep six receivers, which probably would be the case. But let's just say for the sake of discussion, they got DK Metcalf. 
or they traded for somebody. I don't know, A.J. Green, somebody like that who's out. Somebody's got to be out. Zay Jones going to be the sixth receiver or Robert Foster. One of them would end up being the sixth receiver, probably not even dressing on game days. You know what I mean? So somebody would have had to been out. That's my take on it anyway. Absolutely, man. If you felt as though, not you, but anybody felt as though they should have drafted somebody, then you lack confidence in either Robert Foster or Zay Jones to become something, either one or both to become something, you know, in this league. And I believe that by not drafting a receiver high or uh, at all, really, it was a tremendous vote of confidence for those two. And it's a vote of confidence that uh, that I support 100 percent. All right, let's talk running backs here. That, to me, is the second biggest Buffalo Bills post-draft storyline going right now. So they already have LaShawn McCoy. They already have Frank Gore. They signed T.J. Eldon a week before the draft. And then they go out and they draft, which not drafted a running back. Let me be clear on this. Not so much a surprise. But Devin Singletary in the third round, when you still had defensive end needs, perceived anyway, maybe to take a receiver, a tight end. Before that, they they, they get one afterwards, but whatever. Point being, early third-round pick they used on a running back. That surprised a lot of people, certainly me. What's your take on that? Are you surprised that the Buffalo Bills used a draft pick, not a draft pick, that the Bills used an early draft pick, a third-round pick, on a running back when they already had three veterans on the roster? Yeah, but I, I felt like a running back would be added in, in the middle of the draft. I thought it would come early on day three as opposed to late on day two, but it's, you know, six to one, half a dozen to another. I I, I feel like a running back was going to be added. And um, Well, you saw, it, you saw it much better than I did because if I thought if they were going to take a running back, it would be late in the draft, the guy that they could just pretty much sit on the bench and redshirt and keep inactive for a year and then maybe – go on till the next but again him being in the third round I don't think you draft somebody in the third round to just be a red shirt kid no you're right I like I said I I thought we'd see it on day three uh as opposed to day two I was thinking you know perhaps a fourth you know maybe but more likely fifth sixth round guy and and I'm with you you know trying to slip him to to the to the practice squad kind of thing but I've always been in the same camp as you when it comes to LaShawn McCoy Okay, I go all the way back to I think last year was just a disaster for, you know, for for him and for his. The only thing that saved LaShawn McCoy last year was how much confidence he pumped into the uh, to the young quarterback. Okay, that became very important, I think, to uh, the decision makers at One Bell's Drive. But other than that, man, I don't think they liked the publicity that he got. Uh, in the off season with the girlfriend. All right. Uh, I don't think they, they thought his production was very good, you know, regardless of how the offensive line performed, you know, that I, I don't think they felt like he was a, a really good captain or leader. And I just, I don't think he is. I, I think it was just uh, uh, a I case agree. where the offense, the offense didn't have, you know, real good leadership. And I continue to think that his his hold on a roster spot and by extension, you know, a, a starting spot is is I think his hold on it is is um, is very tenuous, man. I, I think I, I think they shopped him around the deadline. I think they got a feel. I think they didn't want to make a sucker trade, but I think Bean has an idea of what he could get for them. Uh, or for him in an injury scenario or something like that. 
And I think he is just blowing smoke up people's ass when he talks about having all four of these cats on the roster, you know, come the opener. I just do. Well, I'll tell you, man, I think they're going to go to training camp with a complete open mind, which is me sort of backtracking from what I've been saying for many, many months now that I think LaShawn McCoy is definitely going to be a goner. And that was before the draft, by the way. I think they're going to go to camp and just legitimately see what happens. LaShawn McCoy was not good last year. Well, how much of that is his own regression? How much of that was the offensive line? I think the reception is the offensive line, and we'll talk about them shortly, is going to be much improved. So that excuse, if it's not there, was it the line? Was it LaShawn McCoy? Can he stay healthy? Ditto for Frank Gore. You know, there's no guarantee that both Gore and LaShawn McCoy will both come out of camp healthy. And then you got TJ Yeldon, who I think is more the third down pass catcher that's going to be his role on this team. And I'm good with that. And then, of course, you got the rookie Singletary. So I think that they're going to go into camp with a complete open mind. And if all of the guys come out healthy, maybe they start the season with all four and maybe Singletary's inactive for a couple of games and they see how it plays out. Because between LaShawn McCoy and Frank Gore, I do still think one of them are going to be gone, but it might not have to happen in May, June, July, or even August, maybe a couple games in the season. Maybe one of them get hurt, or again, maybe one of them just clearly don't have it anymore. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm with that. I, I I can get with that. Um, that's why I was somewhat careful to say I don't think they go into uh, the opener with four, but I, I because I do think that they may well you know go to camp with four. They may well break camp with four. But yes, with the age of, of the two at the top uh, and the inexperience of Singletary, uh, maybe maybe he does. Maybe there is a red shirt scenario uh, that that plays out through the first quarter of the season. But uh, he gets out there eventually, man. He gets oh, yeah. out there eventually. There's no and doubt Yeldon, about it. The big thing with Yeldon, I I would agree that there that he's no lock, but he got two years. All right, not one. You know, when you get two years, you're you know you're a lot closer to a lock than anything uh, than not. So I want to hit on the last of the Bills post-draft storylines, which I think is the biggest, and that's definitely the offensive line. And you know what's funny? I never in a million years thought I would ever go to a Buffalo Bills training camp more excited to see how the offensive line shakes out than any other position on the roster. Yet, here we are. And of course, that is because the offensive line last year, and I've said this many times, I think it was literally, quite literally, the worst offensive line in the history of the franchise, it was just that bad. They've obviously, they recognize that Brandon Beanie went out. He addressed it. They signed six free agents. And that doesn't even count Cody Ford, who they went on and drafted in the second round, where some people thought maybe they would take defensive end, receiver, tight end. Other position besides offensive line after all they did during free agency. But they kept they keep adding to it. The competition is real when it comes to the offensive line. Are you surprised that they went to the extent that they did to really, really address this offensive line? I'm probably somewhere in between had to happen and a little surprised. Like I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a lot surprised at the amounts of new faces that they brought in. I'm not sure that it had to happen. Like, I mean, if they would have came out and said, hey, look, we really liked Wyatt Teller at the end of last year, and we've got him penciled in as a starter, I don't think anybody blinks, okay? Wyatt Teller's going to have a hard time making his football 
team now, let alone being penciled in as a starter for whatever he did last year. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, yeah, man, they went, um, they went all in on, on this, uh, on this group and I'm with you. It's a super fun group to talk about and to, uh, and it will be to watch, um, even in the OTAs to, to see how, how they combine this group in the first team and second teams and stuff like that. And how that matches up to a lot of people's, uh, predictions, you know, that are, that are happening right now. The number one, you know, prediction of, of which I think is, is, is about to come from tone pucks as soon as we start chatting on this thing. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, man, I'm, you said it OTAs. I'm actually looking for, I, I don't give a shit about OTAs, but I'm looking forward to it this year only for that reason. And that reason alone, I feel like, the only, the only sure thing right now, Mitch Morris is their center. That's a lock. That's a done deal. Outside of that, man, so many players could play. It could go so many different ways. I think Deion Dawkins will get a first look at left tackle, but I don't think he's locked in even the slightest at left tackle. Spain, I could see him playing left guard to start. Maybe Long or Feliciano. One of them two might get the first team reps early on at right guard. And I think Cody Ford, Brandon Bean said that right tackle is going to be their first choice for him. Again, he's another one, though. I'm not sure if he's going to meant to play right tackle in the NFL. He might play guard. Deion Dawkins could very easily go from left tackle inside the guard. You got Naseki, who I didn't even mention yet. I originally, before the draft, I think he was penciled in to be the right tackle. That changes now with Cody Ford being drafted in the second round. But everything I've heard and read, Ty Naseki's actually better on the left side. I know when Trent Williams went down for Washington last year that he played really well. Maybe Naseki becomes a left tackle. Deion Dawkins goes to left or right guard and Cody Ford plays right guard or maybe Ford could slide into guard and Deion Dawkins could play the right side or Dawkins could play the left and Naseki could play the right. There's just so many combinations. Again, I said Long and Feliciano. I guess you can include Wyatt Teller in a mix. He did start a little bit at the end of the season. Adrian Waddle will probably be the fourth tackle. He'll be, he'll be in the mix. He's not going to start, but I, I think he he's pretty secure on this roster as things stand right now. But like I said, man, competition, there's just so many combinations on how they could go with this team. It's a little early for predictions, but I'm going to ask you for a prediction of sorts anyway. How do you see it playing out over the next couple weeks and months with this offensive line? Which, again, it's going to be fun to watch. An offensive line is fucking going to be fun to track. I can't believe I'm saying that. Nah, man, but I, I appreciate you going over every single possible fucking combina combination imaginable, <laughs> leaving me absolutely no room to come up with a unique one out of the bunch. Well, what's yours anyway, even if it's not unique? How do you see it playing out? I'm, I'm going to bounce a question off you like this, all right? Yeah, we both, I'm in a, obviously, total agreement with you that, that uh, Mitch Morse is a lock, okay? Who is the second most likely guy forget the position all right i want your second most likely guy to be amongst the group of uh of five and i mean you look we'll in, we'll include ford there uh you know uh because that's that's viable but we also uh, you also have to account for him not performing well so i want your Second best bet to be amongst the uh, the group of five is it is it Ford for you? Yes, I think so. Okay, who's after that? I would say, I would say Dawkins only because he's been a starter for two seasons now on the at left tackle. However, 
I could easily see Naseki overtaking him. And Dawkins either moving somewhere or maybe even moving to the bench, man. I have no idea. I don't think Absolutely. there is any lock. If, dude, dude, dude. I, I just, I am 100% in that camp and uh, of, of, of Naseki over Dawkins. Here's the thing, man. Okay. There are people out there, you know, when they put this together, you're not one of them. And I'm, imp- I'm, I'm impressed. It's, it's, you know, some of my thunder, uh, some of my proverbial thunder has been stolen. But there are people out there who put Ty Naseki at the uh, at the swing tackle after the drafting of uh, Cody Ford. To me, you don't pay a swing tackle seven million dollars a year. You want to know who's going to get the first look at things on this offensive line? Follow money and 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 turn. Okay, and this is going to be true of Feliciano as well over some of the others. Ty Naseki is getting seven million dollars a year to be a starting tackle. So if you believe that Cody Ford is going to be penciled in as your starting right tackle, then you absolutely are should be talking about what happens with Deion Dawkins on the inside, because that's going to be, you know, the first look that he gets, in my opinion. I, I, you know, and I may even swing back, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, Dawkins to the bench. You don't put a two-year, uh, uh, a two-year starter at left tackle, second, uh, second round draft pick, um, you know, to the bench. You, you throw him in a Houston Texans trade to get you Jadavion Clowney. But I, I, I see Ty Naseki as the left tackle. I see Dawkins kicking inside and I, I see the, biggest competition on that line happening, uh, you know, between like shit, as many as five dudes for two guard spots with Dawkins also getting some second team reps at either left or right tackle. So I, you know, I, I see Dawkins getting a chance to start on the inside. Okay. Be a third or fourth on the edge, but, um, yeah, he is he is far from a slam dunk. I think they're down on him like a lot of fans were. And sometimes fans can get down on a person, you know, just because what's going on around him sucked and he just gets lumped in with it. I think the way the Bills attacked offensive line this offseason and you know in the draft, which is part of the offseason, I think that tells us that the Bills agree with a lot of uh, a lot of what fans were seeing in Deion Dawkins last year. And he now has to battle Feliciano, who got a good chunk of change, man. Okay, now that's a chunk of that's that's money that could potentially be paid to a first off the bench, um, you know, interior backup lineman. But boy, that's uh, that's pretty damn close to starter money. Feliciano got more than Spain. Long got more than Spain. You know, and then there's Dawkins. That's a a a, a huge huge group battling on the interior of the line if if you believe Nisaki is playing tackle and I believe it firmly I do too one more thing real quick here Derek Anderson retired this week I really don't care about Derek Anderson retiring to be honest with you but Tyree Jackson signed with the Bills after the draft went undrafted of course star quarterback I'm talking about from UB did he get some really shitty advice I don't understand how you could be advised to go in the draft and then not get drafted at all especially when you're a quarterback an underclassman quarterback on top of that. And furthermore, two-part question, I guess. Do you think it affects UB's recruited at all? And not just Jackson, but also Anthony Johnson was a star receiver 
Neither of them ended up getting drafted. I, I saw so many mock drafts where Johnson was going to go in the third or fourth round. He doesn't get drafted either. You think that hurts the recruitment at all when a UB recruiter goes to a living room of a high school star and says, hey, man, we'll get you drafted. You know what I'm saying? Not as bad as people are going to make it out to hurt the recruiting, only because I think the only thing that could have really uh, happened in this scenario is their recruiting could have been helped tremendously by a you know a draft pick on day two or early on day three. I don't think that just like by being undrafted versus drafted, it would have made that much of a difference if if Jackson or Johnson were drafted in, say, the sixth or seventh round. Okay, I, I, I don't think just by being drafted, uh, you know, that would have that would have improved anything. Now, if it if it's you know third through fifth, then then maybe you know that does a little something uh, for you. And obviously, if it would have went you know really well for them. Uh, that can that can be a game changer in in recruiting, but I believe the Mac is what it is in football. I don't believe that there there really is any you know opportunity for Mac schools to you know to to create some sort of you know long term dominance. The Mac has always you know just been a revolving door with this. You know you got. You got a Marshall team, although they're no longer there, but, you know, well, and this is a point, you know, to my, to the contrary, because you got a Marshall team that was able to use guys like Pennington, Leftwich, and, and, uh, uh, and Randy Moss to, you know, to get into a, a, a conference change, but they went nowhere with it. You got a Miami of Ohio team that's got a Hall of Famer, you know, future Hall of Famer and Ben Roethlisberger. They, that, that didn't piggyback into anything. So, there's just really there's no history of of those sort of picks dramatically improving the recruiting opportunity for schools in the MAC. So I, I have no reason to think that uh, that that this would have been any different. Now that's you know not necessarily the case when it comes to basketball. Like in basketball, you can blow up from the MAC because the tournament gives you a chance for exposure. But the MAC gets no exposure you know, on a, on a national stage in football, it's just, it's, it's always just, it's always just going to be the Mac and it's, and it's usually uh, going to change from, from year to year. Um, what about his advice? What about, classes. what about yeah, advice? It sucked. I like it shitty sucked. advice, it was, man. Of course it was terrible. Ugh. Who knows who we got it from? Uh, you know, who knows, you know, but yeah, it was, it was, it was terrible advice and it's a shame, but he is where he is now. He fell into a good spot. Let's fly around and hit some other topics before we get out of here. Sabres, NHL stuff, man. I haven't been paying any attention, honestly, to the NHL in the past few months. I, I don't know any of the coaching candidates well. In fact, I uh, I barely even know who they are, period. I know Paul Hamilton was a big fan of that Ricard Gronberg, but he signed with a top team in Europe, said that no team wanted a guy right now with no NHL head coaching experience. By the way, real quick here, because I taped, pre-taped my last two shows before I went to Buffalo. I got to give a lot of props to Paul Hamilton. 118 episodes now of this podcast. That was the most downloaded, highly rated podcast I've ever, ever had. And I'm going to be honest with you, man. I pre-taped an interview with Paul before I flew out to Buffalo. I did not expect that. I know that he has a very stormy relationship with a lot of fans on Twitter. He, He blocks a lot of people. He doesn't have the best relationship with fans. But I'll tell you what, man. People really gravitated to his interview and... 
It was good. I, I'm sure you didn't listen to it because you don't even like, like I said, a hundred times, you don't even listen to your own segments, but there was a lot of good stuff in there. Not just hockey stuff, but talked about his wife passing away from cancer and how she got through it. And, uh, you know, his weight loss, how it literally saved his life, how he felt like he was dying. Just, I, I like I said, I, I just want to give some props out because I haven't had a chance to since that uh, podcast there. And I wanted to give some props out to Paul Hamilton. It was a really good interview. And again, the most downloaded episode yet of this podcast. Anyway, getting back on track here. Hold on. I just, uh, you know, I, kudos to, to you as well. Um, I, I was shocked that it went as well as it did. You're right. I haven't listened, but I certainly have seen all the feedback on Twitter. I mean, just, you know, you both have gotten terrific feedback from it. I, I mean, I ain't trying to disrespect you here, but I'm surprised, man, you know, because Paul is, you know, a hardcore journal guy. He's never been like really accessible, you know, to uh, in a, in your mom's basement, bloggers and podcasters. You know what I mean? You're right. not his cup. You're not his cup of tea, dude. Right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Pop culture, swearers, stuff like that. He's more of a straight shooting guy. Very. And um, the the fact that uh, that you guys, you know, put it together in, in such a in, in such a way to get the sort of feedback that it has. You know, well, I'll tell you, it shocked the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Paul did say he was a Ricard Gromberg guy, but he's off the market now. And not a lot of big names out there. And I'm assuming that, you know, Bottero definitely wants a guy with NHL head coaching experience, man. doesn't This has the makings of just another uninspired retread hire to you, doesn't it? Absolutely. Ugh. Yeah. Garbage. I mean, you know, I don't even know what to what to say about this team, but it is it is, you know, I haven't really followed, you know, the well, I shouldn't say that I follow the playoffs closely enough because I'm throwing, you know, fan duel lineups in there pretty regularly, although the one I'm I'm playing hardcore has been the NBA playoffs. Um, but I, I've paid a, a attention to the NHL playoffs a little bit. And, and I think, you know, I think as everyone could see, you know, the final four teams, uh, you know, all went through a tank and a rebuild. Uh, and that's, you know, why they are, you know, where they are. You know, you got Carolina who tanked for, you know, uh, you know, that one guy. Uh, Boston, you know, Boston sat there. They, they, they tanked and got, um, you know, the that other guy, guy, that other guy. Yeah. And, uh, look, none of these fucking teams tanked. <laughs> they got into the playoffs. They won a few series, and now they're playing for the right to go to the Stanley Cup. But we had to reinvent the fucking wheel. I, I hate, I've gotten to a point that I hate talking about them. Like, th this 10 minutes that we're doing right now on the Sabres pains me, and I kind of wish I could just delete. In fact, I might end up cutting this out at the end. <laughs> Yo, you know what I'll say, though? Look, what I'll say, and it, the same thing happens to me because I just go off on a tangent, uh, you know, about the tank or whatever, even as un uninspiring as the uh, uh, the next coach choice may be, and I think Jax Martin is at the top of everyone's list of uninspiring oh. coaches. Yeah. Here's the thing, though, dude. Here's the thing. Okay, here's uh, the potential saving grace. All right, Housley may not have just been, you know, a bad fit or you know the wrong, you know, the not time or or in over his head. Housley may have been downright fucking awful, okay, to the point where even average is going to be a massive upgrade 
from Phil Housley. So I, you know, I, I think, I think it's at least possible and, and people should hope. Okay. That Housley was a huge part of the problem because in that case, uninspiring average Jacques Martin becomes so inviting because he at least has shown to be competent. Switching gears here, a development in the Buffalo sports media world news coming out this week that Joe Biscaglia will be leaving channel seven and reportedly not reportedly. Listen, he is going to the athletic Matt Bovey is going to take over as sports director at channel seven. I guess Joe B's contract runs out in August with WKBW. One thing we disagree and we fight about a lot of shit, but one thing I know that me and you agree with is that Joe B is not, and I say this with nothing but the almost, utmost respect to several Buffalo Bills beat writers that I know and have had on this show. I think the world of all of them, they're all really good. But to me, Joe B is not one of the best. He is the best when it comes to covering the Buffalo Bills. The way he writes, the style that he writes with, his podcasting, his breakdowns, I just think he's second to none. So now you got an athletic department covering the Buffalo Bills that's going to consist of Joe B plus Matt Fairborn covering the beat, Tim Graham, long form stuff. I mean, you got a fucking powerhouse of a Buffalo division going on right now at the athletic, man. Yeah, and, and no one more so than than Joe. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, now some, you know, some would say that uh, Tim Graham and his long form um, was the you know, was the powerhouse move that put uh, the athletic on the map. And that, that, that's true. But, you know, you you can't wait too long before you make another power move because people will just kind of, you know, forget you. This is clearly that. Yes, we're in agreement. Pascalia's um, style is is fantastic. I never felt like he got real comfortable on, on TV. He wasn't terrible at it or anything like that. I just... I just didn't think that that's ultimately where he did his best work. I mean, look, he was, you know, he was a handsome guy, well-dressed, well-spoken, all those things. But, you know, he likes to really dig, you know, he really, he likes to dig and, uh, and, and give you good information and stuff like that. And that, that doesn't, that really just doesn't reek uh, of the television side. So I can't wait, you know, I'm, dude, let me tell you something. I'm an athletic subscriber only because it's just not that expensive to be. But for some reason or another, when I click on the article attached to Twitter, I only get the short version that I have to then click over to the app to, you know, to get the long version. And I'm too lazy to do that sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I am. Does that happen to you? Is yeah, this, I know. I know what you're talking about. I'm not too I'm lazy, about? but it does happen. I, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think he, he's going to bring something different to the athletic, and that's why I think he's going to be such a good addition to them. If there was one thing and one thing only that the athletic has lacked, not maybe just in Buffalo, but just generally speaking, is more interactive stuff, podcasts and video presentation and, and things like that. And I, he's going to hammer home. He's going to be the key component of that transition as they start to go into that. I mean, he already does his uh, Billsby podcast with Matt Fairburn. I'm I'd be shocked if that doesn't become part of the athletic model going forward, which is breaking down stuff on video, having his analysis of moves on video and audio. I think he'll, I'm sure he'll do some writing as well, but I mean, Matt covers the beat really well there. Tim does great long form work. 
like you said, man, it's just a big time power move. And by the way, props as well to Matt Beauvais. I think he'll do a really good job as sports director over at Channel Seven. Yeah, he's he's got he's got great personality. He uh, you can see him grow under uh, under Joe B's wing a little bit. I, I just still got beef with Beauvais because we both tried to to sneak into the UFC fight, and he had on like this uh, this uh, out of town media person who never showed up you know, tag on a credential on or whatever. And like totally left me hanging at the service elevator when we got checked by security. <laughs> and I still haven't forgotten that shit. Yo, I want to talk baseball for Good a minute. Luck, regardless. <laughs> I want to talk baseball for just a minute here. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on this episode. Much respect due to my man, Aaron Quinn, the running with Joe. They'll tell, they'll be the first to tell you, man, they don't know shit about baseball. And I know you're going to say that I don't either, whatever. But they don't, damn they don't, right I am. They, I'm looking at some of this you want to talk about, about baseball. It's a bunch of shit 48 hours ago you didn't have a clue about. Bullshit. I do. There's been a couple big storylines, I think, so far. We're, what, roughly a quarter of the season in now. And I didn't know this. I'll admit it till I looked at it. Minnesota Twins are 11 games over 500. Best record in the entire major leagues. I think that's a major storyline. I think the Yankees staying right in the, the thick of things in the AL East, not falling off despite everyone being fucking hurt early in the year. Stan and Aaron judge Hicks, Severino and And I'm sure I'm missing a great, I don't care about Greg bird, but a bunch of other guys. has already been out all those injuries, man. And they're still right there in the thick of things in the AL early on. What do you, what are a couple of your, you know, I don't want to maybe not storylines, but a few things that have really drawn your interest early in the season, besides me having a shitty ass, irrelevant fantasy baseball team. Which... <laughs> I mean, did you even know Martin Perez was on the Twins before nope. 48 hours I, ago? I, did, I look, I'll tell you what. <laughs> no, dude, I, I'll tell you, I look at the rotation. I, 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 I got it in my notes. I know Jose Barrios. I know he's been, he's been dealing this year. He's one of the best young pitchers in baseball, but you look at this fucking rotation, Kyle Gibson, Michael Pineda, Jacob Arizzi. Martin fucking Perez, that rotation, that's four-fifths of the rotation. And they got the best record in baseball. How does that happen right now? Oh, they got a good uh, – they're, they're good on the back end too. And and they, you know, they don't pigeonhole themselves, uh, you know, in in the ninth. They use, uh, they use you know, three different guys back there. So, the you know, the pen is good. The rotation's good. I can't believe – that Kyle Gibson, a guy with 175 strikeouts last year and a sub four ERA, was sitting on the waiver wire in in uh, in our Yahoo league, you know, because he got off to a you know like two bad starts this season. That was a that was a huge pickup for the Kielbasa kids. Um, and yeah, man, they're a lot of fun. Although I think my my and and I. I do agree with you on the Yankees too, although I think they'll go through a period where they get healthy and start losing some games to some stiffer competition. Cause I think they've been fortunate uh, schedule wise uh, early on in the season. So I think you're going to have that little run, uh, you know, where Yankee fans, you know, get all weird. Like they tend to when guys start coming back and Stanton striking out four times and shit like that. And, you know, you start to hear, you know, the moronic man, we were better off with, uh, you know, with all the triple a players. So I do think they're going to have a, uh, a, a, you know, some hiccups still as they get healthy and the competition stiffens for them a little bit. Um, Cause I don't even know. I mean, have, have we seen, uh, Yankees Rays or, or Yankees Sox yet this year? Maybe one Yankees Sox. Well, series, the Yankees, but- yeah, once with Boston, and they are actually as we we well, this is Friday. They're actually the Yankees are in Tampa this weekend. Oh, I love that team. 
funny you say that about the Rays because, you know, I tweeted, you know, I'm all about the Twitter likes, man. I highlighted a tweet from somebody earlier this week that said, Rays came home with best record in majors, playing a winning D-backs team with Blake Snell pitching and drew a season-low gathering of 8,124. I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. I kind of made a comment about the Buffalo Rays would draw more than that in downtown Buffalo. That was kind of tongue-in-cheek. But dead serious, man, Tampa fans suck. You got a great team with the reigning Cy Young pitcher on the mound, and you're drawing less than 8,500 fans to a game? I don't care what the situation is. That's disgraceful. Disgraceful. Yeah, well, you know, that the... It's like the quickest way to getting Twitter likes is like the same is is it's like the equivalent of of uh, talking about quitting smoking on Facebook for likes. All right, <laughs> just tell Buffalo fans how great they are. Just tell Buffalo fans how great they are and shit. All right, yeah, or don't. It. It, it's called going to the well for likes. Don't tell me about your three hundred. It's a box office tweet. I told you that. I do it on Facebook. You don't picture yeah. your kid up there if you're if you want to get some likes and shit. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Hi, my name is Matt Cundell, and this portion of the Moranalytics podcast is powered by my company, MattCundellVoice.com. If you need a voice for your company videos, narration, e-learning, maybe it's your radio or TV ad, or even your phone system, consider using my voice to tell your story. I'm not only a sponsor of this podcast, I'm also a regular listener, wrestling fan, and longtime supporter of the Buffalo Bills. For more, check out MattCundellVoice.com or click on the link in the show notes. So last topic here, then we'll, then we're done. I want to talk thrones for a few minutes. We, I don't want to say that we disagree because I think to some extent we agree. You've been far less satisfied with this final season so far than I have. And I guess I, I'm going to get to your point because I think you have a very good one. The one thing that really bothers me, and I spent a lot of time on Twitter before and during episodes of Game of Thrones. So I get a really good gauge of what people are tweeting about and how they feel and their reactions. And I spend literally hours on YouTube watching video recaps and stuff like that. I read as many things as I can. The biggest criticism that drives me crazy is when I hear some fans, mainly longtime fans of the show. And again, I get it to some extent, but they say that the show this season is kind of dragged out, that it's been dragging out or that it's been boring because there's been four episodes, but there's only been one real episode packed with action and battles. But I completely disagree with anyone who says that episode four, especially this last one, dragged out or that it was boring. I mean, you take a look around, okay? You got Daenerys's most trusted confidant and BFF literally getting fucking beheaded. The second of her third dragons is killed. Hate the way it happened, but whatever. It happened. The seeds of betrayal from Varys, for sure, on Daenerys. Quite possibly Tyrion as well. You got Jamie banging Sir Lady Brienne and then leaving her to go back to Cersei. Who knows how that plays out, but it happened again. You got the Hound and Arya riding together, going towards King's Landing. I think we know where they're going with that. Uh, John's sisters finding out about his bloodline. That's an eventful episode. I don't know how anyone could say that that dragged down and that it's boring. Now, on the other hand, some people, and I know you're one of them, have a problem with some sloppy, shitty writing. And I can get on board with that. You got the dragon getting killed. I mean, to me, that was just stupid. Why didn't the dragon go behind the boats after that happened? Now, um, Daenerys' dragon and fucking just fry Euron's entire fleet. How do they escape like that? You know what I mean? 
other things like Brand. I think he's pretty much useless at this point. Uh, Tyrion, I feel like he's went from being the wise, brilliant person to borderline drunk and stupid. I mean, he's always been drunk, but he's always been, the quote was, I drink and I know things. Well, he doesn't know shit right now going by their writing. And of course, you got John's unsatisfying goodbye to his wolf ghost. That was awful and lazy. I don't know, man. I guess you've considered this last season disappointing so far. Elaborate a little bit. Because this is, like I said, it's a real hot button topic in pop culture. What's your biggest problem with this season so far? Well, <laughs> it's hard because you don't want to fall into the uh, the trap of the expectations were so high that just because it doesn't live up to them, that for some reason it's actually been bad. Okay, so I, I really try to guard against that. But, you know, there's so many things you just mentioned that I could elaborate on. My, I'll start with this, though, the dialogue. Okay, I mean, and, and we, you know, you mentioned Tyrion. His part of the brilliance of his character is his is his dialogue, his lines, the writing, obviously, of his lines. I don't think they've even been close. All right. This year to what they've to what they've been in the past. I'll even go back to like the very the opening joke of the season when him and Varys were were, you know, riding in the, the cart uh, in the, uh, uh, you know, the entourage or whatever, um, when John and, and Daenerys were. Uh, we're marching into Winterfell and, you know, some line about because I've got balls. That's, I mean, it, it didn't even make me laugh. I didn't even crack a smile. Now, obviously, that was only like three minutes into the uh, into the season. So I'm not ready to be sour by any stretch of the imagination. But I've gone back and watched that first episode and thought to myself, yeah, you know, I thought that joke was a little off then. And it's really made sense with his character as a whole. For the rest of this, uh, you know, for the rest of the season, he had some decent interaction with Sansa, uh, you know, when they when they, you know, kind of revisited Joffrey's wedding. It was actually her line that was brilliant when he said, you know, miserable affair. And she said it had its moments. Now, that's great writing. That's mm -hmm. a great line. OK, but when him and Var uh, Varys were talking about which way to go with, um, uh, you know, with with a power struggle, you know, should have come down to Daenerys and, and John. Boy, that that was not a well written scene, man. OK, that was not a well written scene. The, the, the dialogue between those two in seasons past has been can't miss type of type of scenes. That one was not good. And his his plea to Cersei about her unborn child or whatever. I mean, he's made that same plea two or three different times in, in past seasons. It's old. It wasn't, uh, to me, it's just, it wasn't very interesting. And and it doesn't stop with just Tyrion's lines. The scene with Bronn and the two Lannisters, you would die for a scene like that in years past. Dude, that scene was garbage. That scene wasn't good. So, uh, you know... You talk about the battles, whether or not it was boring. No, I, I disagree with that, too. I don't think it's been boring. But, you know, it used to take battles used to build for episodes at a time and then culminate in like this brilliant, uh, you know, uh, scenery and television. You know, the, the, the Blackwater battle and the, uh, you know, the, the Firewater and, and shit like that. These battles, they, they go right from one battle to another. You know, they're they just mark. There's just there's no intrigue to it. There's just no intrigue to it. They say they're about to battle and boom, there's a battle. 
You know, remember when the dragons came through the clouds at the Lannisters after they had just pirated, you know, Dorne or, or not Dorne, but wherever, uh, you know, all the gold is, you know, but yeah. the scene. I mean, that shit was like, yes, you know, you, the pounding of the of the Dothraki's horses, the dragons through the clouds. All of a sudden, you know, that's become the norm. The beauty of it was, you know, you waited and waited and anticipated and wondered if it would ever come, you know, a scene where the dragons fucking, you know, unleash. Now it it's just like, you know, it's like it's just constant. There's no buildup. There's no intrigue. They just go to battle. The dragons, you know, get killed 15 seconds into a battle, you know, by by fucking... Uh, Euron. What's his name? Euron. Euron's a decent. Euron's a good character, but with limits. Okay, making Euron, you know, a, a a primary character towards the end here. Um, it's 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 only been okay. Now the actual kill scene was nice. All right, you know, one to the belly and then one through the throat. That's a nice kill. You know that that's graphic. You know what I mean? It's 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 that that worked for me but the sequence of it simply didn't you know and and shit dude i wrote stuff down uh, you know look I, I know what getting laid can do to a person but gendry shot his shot worse than anyone ever has in the history of fucking motherfuckers who have ever shot their shot okay <laughs> that good. shit was awful <laughs> brianne becoming a babbling crying you know needy uh relationship person you know over Jamie leaving, that's not that's not Brienne, man. That ain't who Brienne is. And what is it that made Jamie go back, anyways? Was it because Cersei was about to win, or Cersei was about to lose? What's the storyline there? What is drawing Jamie back? Jamie knew they were going. You know who whoever you know drew first blood. How did that change? The way Jamie felt, the the idea of, of him being drawn back to Cersei was was not very well depicted. And that's, man, boy, the more I go, the more I realize that uh, that my disappointment may be greater than I, <laughs> than I thought. <laughs> I mean, like, and I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm. Maybe I'm not making good points here. If no, I think you are. If anyone's still listening to this at an hour and 35 minutes, you know, I, God bless you, because uh, you know, there's probably only five people that are even going to hear these fucking points. <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't think I'm really that far off base in any of them. No, I don't think you are either. And I would say this: if there's two parts of the show, especially the last episode in particular, that I really hate, is it just that felt like lazy writing to me? Was the ambush? How did that happen? How were they so easily ambushed on their way back to Dragonstone? Which kind of goes into my point. Bran, is he fucking useless at this point? Isn't he supposed to see everything that's happening? How did that happen so easily? And the dragon got killed way too easy for my liking. I didn't like that at all. And then the other thing I don't like is why Tyrion would bother trying to reason with Cersei. I mean, they just fought the fucking army of the dead. And she didn't bother to send troops to try to help them. You think she's going to listen to your reason now? You literally physically brought her one of, what are they called? The White Walkers. You, you physically brought one and she saw it with her own eyes and she still would not commit and she lied and she didn't help you in the war, the North War, the battle of Winterfell. She didn't help you. So why would you think that reasoning 
is going to help at this point. It's just, I don't know. It's dumb. It was bad. I mean, yeah, you're right, man. That shit was bad. And even when he tried to convince, you know, her, her hand or whatever, like, like they were going to solve it. You knew that that wasn't going to solve shit. You know, you know that that wasn't going anywhere. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what though. This is what makes this show so great for me. It's kind of like freaking sports. Let, Let me explain that a little bit. This is, it's a show. It's a fictional show. Yet there's YouTube videos with recaps and theories up the ass podcasts. In fact, just last night, my wife and I, we listened to one on the ringer for like two hours. It was a two hour episode last night. And we listened to the entire thing. It's like, there's so much to unpack and and talk about that. It makes me feel like kind of like we're talking about sports and it's like game seven on Sunday is coming up or we we have no clue for all the bitching that we're doing right now. What the fuck's actually going to happen. It's fun to speculate. It's fun to have takes and, you know, make predictions just like we do with the bills, just like with sports. And so game seven's coming up or actually let's call Sunday game six. Cause there's two more episodes. All right. Yeah, yeah, okay, it's going to yeah. culminate. I think ultimately for our bitching right now. And I think you have some really good points. My only issue with critics right now are people who say that nothing's happening. That's uneventful and that it's boring and drag it on. That's not the case at all. I think it's more lazy, uninspired writing at this point. But anyway, at the end of the day, I feel like it's going to culminate and be judged ultimately on these last two episodes, how the show ends. So I guess last question here is how do you see things playing out over the next one to two episodes? When it's all said and done, give me a prediction or two. How do you think things play out at the end? Well, look, you know, this is how much, you know, the internet and just, you know, people's thirst for knowledge. Um, and even, you know, a kind of a new gambling culture, uh, in, in the world as well alters things. Okay. I don't know how things are going to play out at the end, but I do know this. Okay. The odds at Bavada, because Bavada has a, a line on who's, who runs Westeros at the end of the show. Okay. The odds on brand just went from plus 800 to plus 150. Okay. Really? So, so, you know, Somebody knows something, dude, because literally true money gambling odds on who runs Westeros at the end of this show just went hugely towards Bran. Wow. Take what you will for that. Wow. All it takes is someone to fucking, you know, someone to, to, uh, to go back on their word. And I'm sorry. One more thing going back on their word. The fucking scene where John told Arya and Sansa his news and made them both swear was about the equivalent of a goddamn seventh grade pinky swear. Do you swear it? (laughs) Swear. No, swear it. Do you swear it? I swear. I swear. Oh my God, it was awful. That was bad, dude. That was bad. That was corny. That was a bad scene. That's huge information that's been building for seven seasons that culminates in a, I swear, I swear too. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But anyway, all right. So listen, it's been a while. Finish off this like full season of a podcast all in one episode with your puck drop. What do you got? Oh my God! I guess there's still one of these coming, huh? If uh, if anyway, you know, it's too bad that that everybody has probably tuned this out. I'm going really off the board with this uh, with this puck drop here, and this is, it's all tongue in cheek for the most part. Okay, I love family, I love children. I'm a I'm an all around great guy. 
But here's the deal. All right. I have th- I have three sons through a marriage that are now 21, 18 and 15. OK, uh, I now also have two foster children, which, you know, very well one day uh, I may be a, a permanent resource for, you know, depending how things things go through the system. They are three years old and six months old. They are fun as shit. But here's the deal. All right. For all you young guys out there that uh, that may be sweating having the first kid or maybe you've got one and and, you know, you're thinking about the second one. Let me tell you something tried and true about fatherhood and having kids. OK, if you're all all worried about having that first kid, you need to just chill out. OK, having that first kid, it, it may seem like a big lifestyle change or whatever, but, you know, you'll learn in time that that is basically like getting a fucking goldfish. Okay. If you can't handle one fucking kid, you know, something's wrong with you. There's two of you, you know, most of the time, or at least, you know, after the first kid, you know, you're not divorced yet. There's two of you. There's one of them. You know, you give them all the attention. It's it's not really a life changer. Okay. The problem is what then happens is you gain this confidence. You think the shit's easy. All right. You think she'll be asking for another one or whatever. All right. And that's when everything changes. Okay. You have that second kid and you are fucked forever. All right. Nothing changes your life like kid number two. Okay. <laughs> Kid number two is usually terrible in and of themselves. My 18-year-old Jacob, who's a fabulous fucking person, was the worst goddamn infant you could ever imagine. I've told him this a hundred times. The kid never shut up. He never stopped crying. All right. Now, in this scenario now, the seven-month-old, he has been the perfect baby. All right. He's been perfect. But that doesn't matter. All right. Because then, you know, usually the sibling just becomes unbearable because the other one's getting all the attention. Okay. I'm just I'm telling you guys. All right. Take it from me. If you're young and you're thinking about a new family and stuff like that. Oh, and and the other thing is, is that don't let the second one, though, discourage you from anything after that, because after that, you might as well go all in and be Philip fucking Rivers. okay? because shit can't get any worse, whether it's two or nine. You're fucked. Your life's over no matter what. All right. But think long and hard from one to two and be ready. All right. To give yourself entirely to the dark side of children because they own you at that point. At that point, all right, your life becomes looking forward to doing a fucking C-list podcast at 10 o'clock in the morning with a friend you don't even give a shit about that much anymore. (laughs) And that becomes the highlight of your fucking day. Uh, uh, Life advice with soul bucks. That's good, man. All right, that is going to do it for this podcast. Thanks again to my man, Tone Pucks. Always fun to have that with Pucks. Coming up on Tuesday's show, I'll have on Joe DiBiase from WGR. Going to talk to him about some things, including his brand new Sneaky Joe Show podcast. We'll find out what that's all about. Guys, if you have not yet done so already, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast. When you subscribe, new episodes automatically get sent directly to your phone or to your computer within just minutes of the release. That's the benefit of subscribing. Tone Pucks does not do that. You'll get the new episode before anyone else does. New shows every Tuesday and Friday. Don't forget to rate and review. Again, that always helps the show tremendously. You can find us anywhere. Podcasts are found. You can also subscribe to our new YouTube station or new YouTube channel, I should say. Just go to YouTube, type in Moralytics Podcast. Hit the subscribe button there. You'll get notifications. I like clips from current and past episodes, some original audio content, all that fun shit. Last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pabaran Tweets. 
Thanks oh, again Jesus for Jesus. Oh, Christ. stop. Let me Let's fucking finish go. here. <laughs> Thanks again for listening, everyone. I'll be back with a new show next Tuesday. Plenty to talk about. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.